0: Amen. Last week we spoke to you from the first chapter in the book of Mark. And we spoke to you how that the Lord Jesus Christ was invited along with James and John into the house of Andrew and Simon, which was Peter. And while there, the Lord healed Peter's mother-in-law. Also mentioned prior to this, where the Lord had departed from the synagogue, where he healed a man there. And then prior to that, he walked by the seashore of the Sea of Galilee. And that's where I want to dwell this morning. The Lord Jesus Christ walked by the Sea of Galilee, and He saw four men. And He saw James and John, who were the sons of a man by the name of Zebedee. And He saw Simon and Andrew, who were brothers. And these two sets of brothers worked together and labored together to provide a living for their families uh, by fishing and catching fish in the Sea of Galilee. It must have been a lucrative business, or at least one that was very successful, because we find where Zebedee also had servants. So he had servants, he had his two sons, James and John, but also hired along with them was Andrew and Simon. And the Lord Jesus Christ walked along that shore and spoke to both of these two sets of brothers, and he tells them in Mark 1.17, he says, Come be you followers of me, and I'll make you become fishers. Of men. I made mention how this was a miracle within itself that these men immediately forsook their nets and followed Jesus. And someone came to your place of employment one day and introduced themselves and said, I want you to come and follow me and I'll make you whatever. How many of you are going to walk in and give your boss a two minute notice and leave? I think not, but they did. They immediately straightway, Mark uses the word straightway often in his gospel. It literally means immediately. And straightway they forsook their nets. That is what they've been doing up to this period of time. And by faith they began to follow the Lord Jesus Christ who told them to make them become fishers of men. You have a parallel um, story about this found in Matthew chapter 4. Uh, Mark goes though into more detail about it. And then we find over in the book of Luke chapter 5, I think a separate incident, but nevertheless we find where the Lord comes to where Peter and those who had been fishing had fished that night, and they had fished all night and hadn't caught anything. And the Lord tells them to thrust out a little. I want you to notice this expression, because most all of God's people are willing to thrust out a little, okay? So the Apostle Peter immediately obeys, and they thrust out a little. And Jesus then goes on to the ship and uses that for a pulpit. And now He preaches, teaches, and preaches the gospel to the multitudes on the seashore. Now remember the disciples, including Peter, are part of that captive audience. And then we find where the Lord gives a second command. He says, launch out into the deep. Notice the two commands, thrust out a little, launch out into the deep. We're not prepared to launch out into the deep unless we're ready to thrust out a little. The Apostle Peter was willing to thrust out a little, and he was willing to launch out into the deep, but not before he made this statement. He said, Lord, we've toiled and labored all night long and caught nothing. But then he said, but nevertheless, at Thy word, we will do it. Peter was somewhat mystified about this. We know, according to what we studied, that you caught fish in the Sea of Galilee, usually at nighttime in shallow water. It is now daytime. And the Lord tells His disciples to launch out into the deep, the very opposite of where they would normally catch fish. The man telling them to do this is not a professional fisherman. The Lord Jesus Christ is referred to in a lot of different ways in the Bible. He's referred to certainly as a shepherd, as our great high priest, our Savior, etc., but never as a fisherman. But it's kind of interesting that anytime time they caught a lot of fish, the Lord knew where they were at. And the Lord knew where they were at on this occasion here. And wonder why they were out in the deep in the daytime. Wonder why they were out there. Well, the power of God is exercised in many different ways, and we need not overlook the fact that through God's power, the Lord knew where they were at because He put them there. And so, He tells them, launch it into the deep, and the Apostle Peter says... Nevertheless, Lord, we've we've caught nothing all that light, but nevertheless, at thy word. Now, Peter is a professional fisherman. So, this professional fisherman is going to take the advice of a man who's not a professional fisherman, but he knows, he knows all things, because he's the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, they launch out into the deep, and guess what? They caught so many fish that Peter beckoned for his partners. And they came, and they filled both ships uh, with fish to the point they began to sink. And the Apostle Peter got out of the ship, and Peter confessed. He said, Behold, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Now here this Apostle was not a perfect sinless man, as some would have you think. The Apostle Peter was a sinner. He confessed he was a sinner. I'm a sinful man. And the Lord tells them, after this experience, He says, From henceforth thou shalt catch men. Very similar expression, but notice here. He's told them, come follow me, I'll make you become fishers of men. Here he says, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. Now, they're going to continue to fish, but they're not going to continue to fish for literal fish. But now they're going to go and try to catch men. Now this expression, I may mention this last week, they, it was used in that day by the Greek and Roman philosophers of that day who prided themselves on having great ability when it come to oratorical, uh, you know, skills. They prided themselves in being able to speak in such a manner, in such a way, that would captivate the minds of those in their audience, and persuade them to their way of thinking. And so henceforth the expression, fishers of men, is an expression meant to capture the minds of those that are under your, uh, you know, teaching. Now, the Apostle warns us in Colossians 2, 3, and 4, when he says in verse 3, concerning Jesus Christ, he said, In whom are hid all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom. He said, Beware, though, lest any man beguile you. Beguile you, that means to deceive you, with enticing words. He says, There are those among you that will use enticing words to beguile you, to deceive you. He then says, Four verses later, in verse 8, Beware lest any man spoil you. The word spoil means to bring into captivity, your mind into captivity. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit uh, after the rudiments of this world and not after Christ. So there were people there that Paul was concerned was trying to lure God's people away with enticing words of man's wisdom. Now here's what Paul had to say about this when he wrote to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 2 and 4, he says, For my teaching and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but rather in demonstration of the power and spirit of God. Ministers of the gospel are not to get up before you and try and impress you, uh, you know, being masters of the English language. You learned a long time ago, I'm not that, okay? Never have tried to be, never have wanted to be. If I knew what I know now years ago, I'd have tried a little harder on my English courses, English classes in high school, uh, but I did well enough to get through it all right. But anyway, I don't claim to be a master of that. And neither the Apostle Paul, although he was a highly intelligent man, speak of several languages. He said, My teaching, my preaching was not with enticing, those enticing words of man's wisdom, but rather in demonstration of the Spirit and power of God, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God." Hope you see the difference and distinction right here. So, ministers of the gospel, uh, some of the most powerful ministers of the gospel I've ever known, ever heard in my lifetime, were men with very little education. I've told you before, when my pastor baptized me, he had a third grade education, uh, but he studied the Bible diligently. His studying had a Bible, a dictionary, and a concordance right there at his little kitchen table, in his little kitchen, his little house. That was his study uh, in the house. But his study also went outside the house uh, in all his experiences. And so a minister of the gospel, his study, yes, is from the scripture, from the word of God, but it's by his observance of life in general out here. And so we uh, find the Lord Jesus Christ tells these men, come follow me, I'll make you become fishers, of men. Now, as we study Mark chapter 1, you'll find they were on that occasion on the seashore. They were not involved in fishing at that moment. They were there on the seashore, and they were doing two things with their nets. They were washing their nets, and they were mending their nets. When you go to Luke chapter 5, you'll find where they were casting their nets. So There's three things fishermen did with their nets. Obviously, they cast the net in the hope of catching fish, right? But when they brought the nets in, before they ever cast the nets out a second time, they washed those nets. Nets that were not washed and stretched out to dry would deteriorate and end up rottening. So they washed those nets, stretched them out to dry, inspect those nets to see if they needed be, to be repaired. In other words, to mend their nets. So we find the expression, mending nets, washing nets, and casting nets. And minister of the gospel uh, should work diligently to prepare a message. But i got some news for you. After the message is preached and he goes home, uh, you know, he does a lot of repairing. <laughs> and the more he prepares, the less he'll have to repair. And so I'd much rather prepare than repair. But nevertheless, repairing is part of everything, right? You have to do a little repairing of everything from time to time. So I go home thinking, well, I forgot to say this. And why in the world did I say that? And of course, uh, I, I, I get reminded a time or two, you know, why I said certain things. But anyway, why would I say that? And why in the world that, you know, a, a man in a pool can be dangerous sometimes, you know, with what he's about to say. Uh, but anyway, we try to keep everything under control. And so we find uh, where their nets have to be mended before they can be cast back out and be effective in catching fish. Now, the apostle Peter well, was a man who also knew how to use a hook. Now we go to Matthew chapter 17, we find where he comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, talk, ask him a question about the tribute money that somebody had asked him. And in answering the Apostle Peter, the Lord Jesus Christ tells him, he says, you go into the Sea of Galilee and you cast out a hook, and the first fish you catch will have a coin in his mouth. Now think about that just for a second. What in the world is a fish doing with a coin in his mouth, number one? Number two, the Sea of Galilee is not, not just a little small pond. So how did the Lord know there was a fish with a coin in his mouth? And how did he know it'd be the very first one Peter would catch? Because he's the Lord, that's why. I don't have to explain it any further than that, do I? Because he's the Lord. Alright, so Peter goes down there, sure enough, puts a hook into the water. He's used to catching, fishing with a net. But now he's going to use a hook. So Peter knew how to use a hook as well as a net. But we find the Lord says, come be ye follows me, and I'll make you become fishers of men. To be a fisherman of men, uh, let's think about it just for a second. Now, most everybody enjoys fishing, I think. I don't know if you enjoy it as much as an aunt I had one time. Uh, she enjoyed it so much, she would go, and she'd get a five-gallon bucket. She'd sit on the dam of the pond, and she'd put a hook out there early in the morning, sit there all day long, whether she got a bite or not. She just happy she could be. Now, she'd rather catch a fish, obviously, but she she just enjoyed doing that. Now, if I don't catch something a little while, I get a little impatient, right? But why did the Lord call fishermen? Why did He call at least four? We know at least four, most likely at least seven of the men Jesus called to be His twelve apostles were fishermen. Fishermen were active people. God expects the men He calls to be very active, they had a lot of energy. Uh, They had to be strong. They had to be courageous. They had to be patient. They had to be men who could accept failure as well as success because they didn't always pull in as we see in Luke chapter 5 when they would fished all night long and they caught nothing. I'll go to John chapter 21. Once again, when the Lord comes on the scene, they've gone fishing and they've caught nothing. So sometimes fishermen come back with nothing. There's a dear friend of mine who's gone on to be with the Lord. His name was Paul Law. He was a minister of the gospel at Vero Beach, Florida. Uh, he was a, a, had fished all his life. As a little boy. Grew up on the ocean fishing, and he fished for a living. And then God called him to preach. And I remember something he said I've never forgotten. He said, I fish enough to mess up my preaching, and I preach enough to mess up my fishing. <laughs> and that's the, the lot that a lot of ministers of the gospel find themselves facing you know, from time to time. If they do have to do something in addition to the preaching of the gospel, which many of our ministers do, uh, then whatever they're doing is just enough to mess up the preaching, and they preach enough just to mess up that oftentimes. But I understood what he meant. And I went out fishing with him one time, and he starts out about 3.30 in the morning with a small boat to catch his bait fish. And then he goes out about, he does that, and then we get on the big boat. Well, this time I'm already wore out gets on the big boat and goes out fishing. And I had no idea in the world, and this time I was not a coffee drinker, did not drink coffee, period. And the only thing that he had on that boat was coffee, black coffee, no sugar, no splendor, no cream, no nothing, just black coffee. I don't know how anybody drinks just black coffee, and I'm sure there's people out here that do, but that's not me. I have to make coffee not coffee to enjoy drinking coffee, if you understand what I'm saying. But anyway... Uh, I was kind of glad to get back in, but not so glad as a man named Elder J.A. Monsees was one time, a wonderful minister, again, among our people from Atlanta, Georgia. He was the pastor at Bethany Church for years and years, and uh, he's gone on to be with the Lord. He had several hymns he wrote in our hymn book that we uh, sing from time to time. And uh, he went with Paul, brother in law, and we came back in, Brother Law, uh, he reached his billfold and got some money out to give him Brother Law. And Brother Law said, Brother Monsies, you know I don't ever charge anybody to take him out fishing me. He says, this is not for you taking me out, it's for you bringing me in. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I kind of felt that way myself. But nevertheless, I got that little taste of fishing. Uh, you know. Uh, so my fishing hasn't been like the Apostle Peter, you know, net fishing, what fishing I've done has been with... Uh, a rod and a reel, a pole, or whatever. But nevertheless, he said, you come follow me, and I'll make you become fishers of men. Now, if you're going to fish, you've got to have something to attract the fish if you use a hook. Now, uh, a net's a little bit different. But the Lord's disciples had a message, had a message uh, that they used in order to try to catch fish to captivate captivate the minds of those in the audience. I want to take a look at that this morning. We find that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is spoken of in different ways. It's spoken of as the gospel of God, it's spoken of as the gospel of peace, the gospel of grace, the gospel of your salvation, the gospel of the kingdom, an everlasting gospel, and also the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now before we go any further, let's define the word gospel as we have many times, but let's just remind ourselves what the gospel really means. What does the word mean? It means good news. It means glad tidings. It's a proclamation. It's a declaration of fact, of events that have taken place. Doesn't cause the events. Doesn't uh, create the uh, results of the events or anything. It's just a report. Okay? But what a report it is. It's a wonderful report. A glorious report. Right? But remember, it's a proclamation, a declaration. It's not an invitation. It's not that. Now, What times I have fished along the bank or maybe in a boat, on occasions, I've actually seen a dead fish floating along on the water. Ever done that? How many of you took your net and scooped him up? I didn't. I wasn't trying to catch dead fish. I was trying to catch live fish. My point is this. The people that I try to catch the minds of are people who are alive in Christ. I'm not trying to uh, save the unregenerate. I'm not trying to save the unsaved. I can't do that. That's God's uh, um, power that does that. And he will do that for all whom he gave to the son before time ever began. Had an experience yesterday. Uh, Met these two young men. And they were talking to an older man. Not an old man, but an older man. And this older man, they said, are you retired? I don't know why people here of late keep asking me that. When I meet on you me, know, are you retired? Why are you retired from? Well, I'm not retired. And so, are you retired uh, or still working? I said, well, I'm, I'm still working, going at it full steam. And uh, you know, I'm a minister. I'm a pastor. And he said, well, I said, I've been at for over 47 years. And he said, well, that's wonderful. He says, well, you've saved a lot of lives. And I looked at him. and I said, well, I'd like to think that I've been involved in the lives of a lot of people. There's a lot of difference. I'd like to think I've been involved in the lives of a lot of people because I have never saved one person, not one. That might sound shocking to a lot of people and think I've been preaching 47 years, never saved one person for glory. No, I haven't, and neither has any other man. I remember seeing a bumper sticker one time in the back of a car in the state of Virginia that says I was saved by a preacher. Kind of really irritated me when I read that. But then I got to thinking about it. Yes, you were. You are saved at all. You were saved by a preacher. I was saved by a preacher. Everybody that ever be in glory was saved by a preacher. His name was Jesus. His name was Jesus. But Jesus didn't save you by His preaching. Jesus never saved anybody by His preaching. He saved His people by shedding His blood on Calvary. He redeemed them, justified them, reconciled them in His offering sacrifice to the Father. He never saved a single individual by His preaching or by a miracle or by His teaching. He taught, he preached, he did miracles. None of that altogether ever saved one person for glory who God's people will be in glory one day or be there through the sacrificial offering of the Lord Jesus Christ in his vicarious death that was an offering made to the Father on behalf of those whom the Father had given him. So when I got to thinking about it that way, I almost went and got me a bumper sticker and put it on there. But anyway, uh, the message is, the, let's look at the gospel of God just for a moment. Why is it called the gospel of God? Because it's about God. How does the Bible begin? Genesis 1 and 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and earth. This book is about God. Yes, it's about men, but it's about God. It's about the triune God. It's about God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Not three gods now. One God in three persons. It's all about God. It's about the God of creation. Aren't you glad you believe in creation? In contrast to some people believing that you came from a monkey, evolved from a monkey. Well, the monkey had to come from somewhere, all right? Or you evolved from some little glob of something. Life had to start somewhere. No matter where they say you came from, they can never explain where the life was there that you came from to begin with. Now, imagine believing that. How can anybody believe that? The only explanation I've got to why anybody believes that man evolved from monkeys is because from time to time men act like monkeys. So I guess on certain occasions maybe that's why they come up with that theory. But anyway, I'm thankful to believe in a God of creation, it's the gospel of God, isn't it? It's the gospel about God. It's called the gospel of God because it originated with God. It's God's design for men to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Have you ever just kind of thought about it? Why in the world uh, did God choose this method? Why didn't he choose angels to preach the gospel? Well, it seemed like Gabriel done a pretty good job in coming to Mary and to coming to Joseph and making the announcement of Jesus, right? What about Michael? What about the army of angels in heaven whom we don't have the names? We only have the name of two angels in the Bible. That's Gabriel and Michael. They had this question on a game show the other day, and everybody jumped up and down because he got it right, it was Gabriel. Uh, I told Karen, I said, well, most people know the answer to that whether they're reading the Bible or not. They've heard it so much in their life. But anyway, why did he choose angels to preach the gospel? I'm sure they'd have done a better job of it, right? But no, God chose men to preach the gospel. Notice this, come follow me, I will make you become fishers of men. He did not say, come and follow me, and I'll show you how to become a fisherman of men. He didn't say, come and follow me, and I'll direct you to where you can go and become a fisherman of men. He said, no, come and follow me, and I will make you to be a fisherman of men. And so this is designed of God. It was God's pleasure and God's purpose to call frail, weak, human beings, men, to stand before God's people, to preach the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, Men who are imperfect, men who are sinful men, just like anybody else, men who have their weaknesses, men who have their faults, men who have their problems, men who have difficulties to wade through and fight through, just like everybody else. Ministers of the gospel are not so, <laughs> live on such a high plane that they can't relate to the people they're preaching to. I can assure you, I feel a pain just like you feel a pain. I feel sorrow just like you feel a sorrow. I, I feel, uh, you know, uh, anguish like you feel anguish. Uh, everything that you know and experience, so do I. So do the minister of the gospel in Jesus Christ. God chose poor, feeble, weak, undone, unworthy, men to reclaim the word of God. That's how God's wisdom operates. It's called the gospel of God. It's called the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace. Why is that? Because Jesus Christ is known as the Prince of Peace. We go to Isaiah 9, 6, unless a child is born, unless a son is given, and the government should be upon his shoulders, and his name should be called Wonderful Counselor, the, Man, uh, the, the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and what? The Prince of Peace. When the Prince of Peace was born in this world, what did the angels say? They say, glory to God in the highest, and peace and goodwill will Toward men on this earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Yes, peace had arrived in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's called the gospel of peace, the good news and glad tidings concerning the Prince of Peace. When you think about Jesus as a Prince of Peace, that's good news, isn't it? When you think about Jesus Christ as a Prince of Peace, that's glad tidings, isn't it? His name means Jesus. It means I mean Jesus. His name means salvation. So it's, he's the prince of peace that came to establish peace between the father and his children who have been separated because of a transgression by Adam when sin came into this world. So I look in the second chapter of Ephesians and also the uh, second chapter of the book of Colossians and I find that this work is called a work of peace. In other words, Jesus Christ, when he hung upon the cross, he, as the son of God, he represented God. As the son of man, he represented man. Paul could tell Timothy there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Christ is the mediator. He hung suspended. He was not on the earth. His feet touched not the earth, and yet he was not in heaven. He was suspended between the two. But as God the, as God the Son and God, uh, the God-man, he was able to establish peace, brethren, uh, between the Lord and his people. It's usually referred to in the Bible as a doctrine of reconciliation. The Prince of Peace. But this Prince of Peace showed us how we can have experiential peace, didn't he not? In John fourteen twenty-seven, the Lord is delivering a farewell message to his disciples before going to Calvary. He starts it off like this, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many mansions. Not so, I'd have told you so. And I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, then I shall return and receive you unto myself. That, that'll settle any troubled heart, won't it? When your heart gets troubled, you just think about that statement. If I want to move over to verse 27, the Lord said, My peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth. There is no peace out here in the world. We should be uh, clear on that by now in life, right? If you're old enough to even think for yourself and walk uh, on two feet, you ought to understand there is no peace in this world. There's only true lasting peace in Jesus Christ. This is experiential peace. This is peace to the mind. It's peace to the heart. He closes that message out in 16 and 35 like this. He says, the words that I have spoken unto you, he said, I have spoken to you that you might have peace in this world, you shall have tribulation. He said, but in me, you shall have peace. When I think of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, when I think of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, when I think about him coming down from heaven and him being that mediator between God and men, he brings a peace to my mind and a peace to my heart and a peace to my soul. As I've already mentioned, that morning, when I thought of, of the hymn, you know, because he lives, I can face Tomorrow. When I thought about that, I got, you know, it just settled me down. It just calmed my heart, calmed my mind, calmed my soul. And then I was able to close my eyes and drift off to sleep, putting everything in the hands of the wonderful Savior that we have. Yes, I like the experiential peace that God gives to His children. In the book of Philippians 4 and 6, Paul said that uh, be careful for nothing. The word careful means worry. Be careful for nothing, but in everything. Give thanks unto God through prayer and supplication in the Spirit. And the peace of God that passeth all understanding shall keep your minds and hearts through Him. What a wonderful promise that is. What a wonderful promise. Now you can do one of two things. You can worry or you can take everything to God and put it in His hands, right? You can do one of the two. He said, be careful for nothing, no matter what it is. Be careful not for it. Don't be anxious about it. Don't have anxiety about it. Be surprised how many people in America today are on medicine for anxiety. I'm on medicine for anxiety. It's called the gospel. Uh, That takes care of my anxiety, brethren. The Word of God takes care of my anxiety. I take less and less vitamins. I've told you this before, but I'm I hardly on anything anymore. I don't uh, believe in throwing my money away because I can't tell whether it helps me or not. But anyway, there's one pill that I, I try to take every single day. It's called the Gospel. pill. That's the pill I want to take. And it'll just be good good for you no matter what ails you. It'll be good for you. It'll just take care of It, it specializes in whatever ails you in life you have problems of one kind or another, go to the gospel and take the gospel on a regular and daily basis, right? Be careful for nothing but everything through prayer and supplication of the Spirit, he says. And the peace of God that passeth all understanding goes beyond the understanding of an individual. Shall do what? It shall keep your minds and hearts through Jesus Christ our Lord. I need my mind to be kept. I need my heart to be kept. There, there, there's the two places of the body, brother, that, that work together. You gotta get them in sync. You've got to get them together. And if you get the right information here, it'll take care of what's down in here, I can assure you, every single time. It's called the God of peace, I mean, the gospel of peace. We can say obviously a lot more about that. I will say this in Ephesians chapter 6. When Paul is talking about putting on the whole armor of God, what's part of that armor? It says, having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace. You have your feet shod with it. You know, when I was raised up on the farm, a lot of kids went barefooted. I tried that a time or two and it didn't make any sense to me because every once in a while I'd uh, I'd step on a stone or a rock and just, oh, it would hurt and bruise the bottom of my foot. And then I'd sometimes walk on sand. It'd be so hot in the middle of the summer, just burn my feet. And I thought, I got shoes, I'm putting them on. <laughs> That's what they're for, is to protect your feet. And so the gospel of peace will protect your feet wherever you go, wherever you travel, wherever you walk, brethren. The gospel of peace, to take care of it, is part of the armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness. Have your loins girt about with truth, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and the shield of faith, which might quench the fiery darts of the wicked. Above all things, he says, with prayer and supplication of the Spirit. The gospel of peace. And the gospel of grace. That's another expression concerning the gospel. It's good news and glad tidings about God's grace. Remember the definition. A proclamation, a declaration, good news, glad tidings about what's ever under consideration. So it's called the gospel of grace. Go to Acts chapter 20, verse 24. And the apostle Paul is about to go to Jerusalem. He's trying to get those, his friends and and loved ones to try and persuade him not to go. Here's what Paul says. He said, I count not my life dear unto myself. He says, I am willing to go. And he says, I want to go to testify. Notice this. I want to go to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. And what a testifier he was, right? If anybody knew something about grace, it was the Apostle Paul. He tells his experience in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. When you look at Paul's life as Saul of Tarsus, when he was a the uh, 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 persecutor of the Lord's church, persecuting Jesus, and he was taking men and women and children and putting them in the prison and treating them roughly. He was a, a, a truly a fire-breathing dragon against the church. But on the Damascus road, grace appeared to the, to Saul of Tarsus and turned him around. Did it not when he was struck down in the midday? At midday, and the sun was right at the height. Brother, he'd just cast him right down to the dust of the earth. And he said, Lord, who art thou? He knew a power got hold of him he'd never experienced before. Lord, who art thou? And he said, "Uh, uh, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? So Paul would write later on, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Nothing more, nothing less than God's wonderful grace. I'll have to talk about the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, of course. 2 Corinthians 8 9, Paul writes and he says, for we know the grace of God that though he were rich, yet he became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. Isn't that wonderful how things reversed? How he that upholds the world uh, by the word of his power, that one, my friends, who is omnipotent, got all power and all at heaven and earth, he was rich beyond comprehension, and yet he was willing to forsake those riches. He says, he became poor to the poorest of the poor, wrapped in swallowing clothes and laid in a manger because there was no place for him in the end. He that was rich became poor that we who are in poverty might become rich. The Lord's people are rich rich in spiritual blessings today. I want you to understand that. I want you to know that you're an heir of God and joint an heir with the Lord Jesus Christ. We know the grace of God. Though he were rich, he became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. Oh, the grace of God, the saving grace of God. It's good news and glad tidings, isn't it? Ephesians 2:8. For the grace of you saved through faith that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The saving grace of God. Uh, we believe that grace does not have to have an if, and, or but attached to it. If you put an if with grace, it's no longer grace. A but with grace just not grace right out the window, does it not? We believe in grace, simply grace. For you're saved by grace. That means of God from beginning to end, from first to last, nothing added, nothing taken away. His work is absolutely glorious and perfect. Therefore, you're saved by the grace of God. It's called the gospel of Grace. The gospel of grace. 2 Timothy nine, Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ before the foundation of the world. When was grace first given to you? Before time ever began, before the foundation of the world. God gave you grace in that covenant of grace. And we like to speak of it from time to time. And then there's the sufficiency of God's grace. Oh, how Paul learned that as well. We've experience in Second Corinthians twelve and nine, when Paul was caught up to the third heaven, and he saw things, experienced things that were not lawful for him to utter, and uh, the thorn was given him into the, in his side, and uh, he prayed to the Lord three times that the thorn might be removed. But the Lord would not remove the thorn, but he gave him something called grace. Grace that would help him get through the trials. Grace that would help him get through the, the day, from day to day. Grace, my friends, he says, my grace is sufficient for thee, for in weakness is my strength made perfect. It's in our weakness that we see that God is the omnipotent Lord of glory. My grace is sufficient for you. What about you today? Has God's grace ever been insufficient for you? Can you come up with one one experience in life you want to tell us about? Where well, you say, well God's grace just wasn't sufficient for me that day. Uh, oh the Lord just just left me high and tried. The Lord just abandoned me and his grace wasn't sufficient. I don't think anybody's got that kind of testimony today. I'd say if we had the time, I believe everybody could stand here and relay an experience or one or more experiences that would reflect this great truth. That would demonstrate this great truth: that God's grace is sufficient to take us from day to day. The challenges of life, His grace is sufficient, my friends. Uh, in our weakness, He gives us strength. Uh, in our confusion, He gives us clarity and clearness. Uh, in our fears, He gives us courage. Whatever we stand in need of, His grace is sufficient. That's why it's called the gospel of grace. Oh, we could spend hours on that one. Don't worry, we're not. But anyway, (laughs) I said we could. (laughs) The gospel of peace, the gospel of God, the gospel of grace. It's the gospel of our salvation. Read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 12. You know, actually, get verse 11, it says, In whom we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the work of all things, after the counsel of his own will, to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ, and whom ye also trusted, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Is that why you not come here on Sunday morning? you should be here to honor God. You should be here to honor him in song and prayer and preaching of the gospel and to receive his word and to praise him, my friends, in this very unique way that he has so designed. But I'm telling you, you come here to hear, hear the gospel of your salvation, I trust. that is the good news and glad tidings, what? of your salvation. <laughs> you have salvation in Jesus Christ, and that's good news and glad tidings. I already mentioned his name means salvation, doesn't it? Jesus means salvation. And so you're here to hear the good news and glad tidings of your salvation. How in Jesus was God manifest in the flesh? And Jesus lived the perfect life here in this world. And Jesus made the perfect offering and sacrifice and we are in John 19 and 30 these three wonderful, glorious, profound words. It is finished. What he came to do, he done. What he came to accomplish had been accomplished. It is finished. <laughs> you come to hear the good news, glad tidings, the gospel of your salvation. Salvation we experience eternally. The salvation we experience in time that you might hear the good news, the gospel of your salvation, which is the earnest, he says, that you might be sealed with that uh, Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of your inheritance. The Spirit is your earnest. The earnest of your, you know what uh, earnest money is, right? You know, you buy a house, buy a piece of land, buy anything. They ask for a down payment. They want to know that you're sincere. When a person separates himself from his money, that's pretty sincere. So you give earnest money to validate the fact of your seriousness and your sincerity in purchasing something. And then when you actually purchase it, of course it goes into the final price. I'm telling you that as heirs and joint heirs with Jesus Christ, you have an inheritance and the Spirit of God is the earnest of that inheritance. It gives you a foretaste of what's to come. Just think of the best day you think you've ever enjoyed in the house of God. Maybe it be today. Hope it be today, right? The best day you've ever enjoyed, I'm telling you, that's a drop in the bucket to what's awaiting you in glory. I remember my mother was a fantastic cook of anything and everything she put her hand to. And boy, she can make the best cakes and the best pies. And I remember when she'd bake the cake and she put the icing on it, she'd hand me the spatula and I'd just lick it. Boy, was it good. (laughs) I already had a foretaste what that cake was going to taste like. (laughs) She made the best sweet potato pies. Now my dad got into the habit of making sweet potato pies after she passed away. And he made some good ones, but he just couldn't quite quite get there to what mom did. But he'd take them to his doctors. He'd take them to his nurses. He would. He'd make them. (laughs) He had a jeweler friend. He'd take them to the jeweler. He'd just make pies and give them to everybody. But she'd make those pies, those sweet potato pies. And again, um, you know, have a little of that uh, batter, whatever you want to call it, uh, left on that spatula she'd hand it to me and I'd just take and and clean it up. (laughs) I already knew ahead of time how good that pie was going to be. The gospel is telling you how wonderful and glorious heaven's going to be. It's a foretaste of better things to come, is it not? And I going to use the remaining time this morning to talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We talk about the gospel of God, the gospel of peace, the gospel of your salvation, the gospel of grace, the gospel of the kingdom. But Mark starts off his writings here in Mark 1.1 when he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the good news and glad tidings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to go back and look at a prophecy found in Isaiah 52.7 where the prophet's talking about the coming of the Savior and here's how it reads. He said, how beautiful are the feet, how beautiful upon the mountains, are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good things, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, thy God reigneth. Now notice how beautiful upon the mountains. Jerusalem was in the top of mountains. How beautiful upon the mountains. Everything about God's always up, my friends, in contrast to everything in this world being down. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good news and glad tidings. It's him in the singular. In Romans 10 and 15, it says, how beautiful the mountains are the feet of them, plural. Here it's singular pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. How beautiful are the feet of him. Notice, why feet? Of all the parts of the body, the feet would seem to be the most unseemly, correct? Of all the parts of the body. And he says, how beautiful are the feet of him. How beautiful in the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good news and glad tidings that publisheth salvation. Look a, take a look at the feet of this wonderful man. Let's walk uh, along the journey with Jesus for just a little bit. When he started walking here in this world, when he was old enough to walk, we see his walk at 12 years of age when he went there to the temple and he was asking and answering the questions of the doctors and the lawyers. We find that the Lord's feet took him up from Galilee through, uh, uh, down through uh, Samaria down to Jerusalem and Judea. And then his feet would take him from there right back up through Samaria up to the shores of Galilee. And wherever the feet of Jesus took him, my friends, it's where Jesus had planned to go. You just watch the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. Feet uh, that are adorable, how beautiful the feet of him that bringeth good news and glad tidings that publisheth salvation. Those feet were so beautiful to a little woman in Luke chapter 7 that she came behind him again to weep. Weep in such a great quantity that she could wash the feet of this wonderful man, the Lord Jesus Christ. How much water does it take to wash feet, right? You know, we practice foot washing here at Bethel Primitive Baptist Church because the Lord told us to do it. I could uh, give you other reasons, but that should be enough. The Lord just said we ought to do it, so we knew. All right, it takes a certain amount of water to put the foot down into the pan and cover the foot and wash the foot. Have you ever cried that many tears in your life? I'm sure there are times in which you have cried and you've cried and you couldn't cry no more. But brother, here are enough tears that flowed in the eyes of this woman. She took those tears and washed these beautiful feet of the Savior. And then she took her hair and she dried those wonderful, beautiful feet of the Savior. And then she kissed his feet and she anointed his feet. And the Lord rebuked that Pharisee in the house in which they were at and said, from the time I was here, you gave me no water, you gave me no kiss, you gave me no anointing oil, but this woman has not ceased to wash my feet with tears, dry them with the hair of her head, and then uh, uh, kiss my feet, and anoint those precious, beautiful feet. I read in the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John, or the uh, 12th chapter, other where a woman of the name of Mary... She comes and she breaks an alabaster box, a precious ointment to do what with? To anoint the beautiful feet of the Savior, the beautiful feet of Jesus. She anoints those feet. She honored him in a glorious and wonderful way. She honored him prior. She anointed for his burial that was going to take place not long after that. Here his feet are washed and they are anointed. These feet uh, that uh, carried him from place to place, that were carried his body, it was such a blessing to the Lord's people. I uh, Come to Luke chapter 17. And here you find where the Lord came in contact with 10 lepers. And with those 10 lepers, you're gonna find where the Lord cleansed all 10 of these lepers, all 10 of them, who had this incurable, dreaded disease of that day, leprosy. And then he told them to go to the priest and show himself according to the law. You would have thought all ten would have come around, turned around and praised him to the very best of their ability, right? How many turned around? One. One out of ten turned around and praised him. And the Bible says he turned around with a loud voice, glorified God and fell at his feet and worshipped him. I'm telling you friends, this morning there's never been more beautiful feet in this world than the feet of Jesus, right? How beautiful the mountains, the feet of him that cometh bringing good news and glad tidings. After the Resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, when he appeared to his disciples, what did he do? He said, Behold my feet, my hands, and my feet. They were nailed to a rugged cross. They were nailed there. Hands this way with nails right through the palms of his hands. And his feet like that on the the bottom with a nail right between them. And the Lord said, Behold my hands and my feet. These are beautiful feet that were nailed to the cross of Calvary. And then we find where Mary Magdalene, Matthew 28, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary come to the sepulchre of Jesus and they found it empty. And they turned around with joy and run and tell his disciples they found an empty tomb. I'm glad I can preach to you about an empty tomb. Aren't you? I, I tell you, there's a lot of sepulchres and tombs and, and coffins out here in the world that I have walked away from. that I know the bodies of those people are still there. They are. But No way I'd take you to a tomb where Jesus' body still is. (laughs) Because his tomb is empty, one day yours will be. Because his tomb is empty, one day you will vacate your tomb, your place of rest, and it'll be empty, brethren. Because he lives, we shall live also. And so as they came, they ran into Jesus. And Jesus revealed himself to them. And what did the Bible say they did? They said they they fell at his feet and worshipped him. (laughs) I'm telling you this morning, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the kind of bait I'd like to use to try to capture the minds of the people of God. I want you to understand in your mind uh, the truth of God's wonderful grace. I want you to understand uh, that the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ never took him where he shouldn't go. They walked in total perfection in this world. They were the feet of a man who lived sinless and gloriously and righteously in this world. So when he came to Calvary and offered himself there to the Father, the Father could accept the offering of sacrifice. And the Lord's people would be Free. The gospel of your salvation says that Jesus conquered sin, God, Jesus conquered death, Jesus conquered the grave, Jesus conquered Satan, and Jesus conquered this world in which we live. Been trying to be a fisherman of men for 47 years. (laughs) I think we could actually, that's just one illustration in the scripture of the importance of evangelism. The Lord said in the last part of Matthew chapter 9, He said, Behold, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Praise the Lord of the harvest, He might send forth the laborers into His vineyard. Luke chapter 15, there was a man who had a hundred sheep, and one of them went astray. He just didn't say, Well, I hate that. You know, but I I still got 99. I hate that. But... You know, it's kind of dangerous out there. And I still got 99. I mean, you know, no. He went after that one lost sheep. And he brought it back. The Lord blessed him to bring it back. There are different pictures in the Scriptures. It's not the only restricted to three. But I'll give you these three here. But here's what he said. Come follow me. I'll make you become fishers of men. It requires a lot of different things. It requires cooperation. It requires unity. It requires hard work effort, diligence in order to be a successful fisherman and so in one sense we're all that way but this in particular to the ministry I'll make you become fishers of men thank you so much for your uh, wonderful attention here this morning as always we'd like to select a hymn brother junior I know you got one thank you hymn 347 has been selected we use this as our closing hymn and give an opportunity to anyone that would like to unite with the church. Please feel free to